Amen. If you have your Bible, let's turn together as we keep on worshiping, as we come to the central part of our worship of taking in and submitting ourselves to the Word of God. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking today at the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the uh, one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and that Bible should be on page 946. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible for yourself, uh, then we hope that you'll take that one home. It's our gift to you. Let's read together from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For God, for, excuse me, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm really looking forward to when the weather starts to get a little bit warmer. And when it does, that one of the things that we can do is we can get back out to the Keyport waterfront, set up our little table that says, uh, with the sign that says prayer station, and use that as an opportunity for evangelism for the people who are, are walking past uh, to obviously pray for the things that they have on their minds and the situations in their lives, but to be able to point them to the hope of Jesus Christ. And when we're in a situation like that, whether it's through the prayer table or sharing the gospel in other times and places and ways, um, there's, there are so, so many reasons why people will give to why they are exempt from what it is that we would have to say with the gospel. But one of the ones that we hear all the time, and I'm sure if you tell people around here the gospel, you hear this as well. You'll hear people say, as soon as you bring up the Lord, some people will say, oh, I'm Jewish. Or they'll say, oh, I'm Catholic. Or they'll say, oh, I go to Rainbow Baptist Church. That's a fake church, but you get what I'm saying by it, right? They'll tell you all these things, and what they mean by that is, oh, I see that your goal is to get people to become religious, and I am already religious, and therefore I'm exempt from what you are saying, as though our our goal were to get people to be religious, when in fact what our goal is, our goal is to see people reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are, we are, obviously, we believe in religion in some level, or we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have a church. We wouldn't be gathered together. And there's, there's ways that God has prescribed in the New Testament for that to be done. But the central thing about it, our central concern for individuals is, are you right with God? Are your sins forgiven? But it's so easy for the world, those who, who don't believe the gospel, to look at that and to say, well, if you're going to talk to people who are of other religions, or if you're going to address these different beliefs that are not about the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, then on, on the one hand, maybe you should just not do that. Maybe you should just leave them alone. Maybe you should just say, well, if we're all religious and if we're all sincere about it, then maybe we should just Instead of trying to trying to convert each other, maybe we should just have a big, you know, interfaith kind of a love thing and just pretend that we're all in this together. By the way, the only interfaith service in the Bible is when Elijah comes together with the prophets of Baal and 
That doesn't really go well for the prophets of Baal. You can go and read that. But the other thing that the world might think is that if we tell people from other religions or other religious kinds of systems that they need to believe in the same gospel that we believe in order to go to heaven, well, the way that the world would look at that is, well, that's hateful. You're suggesting that even though they're sincere, even though they, uh, they have a zeal about their service to God or whatever it is that they would picture as God, that, that you think they're, they're, they're not going to be saved from their sins through what they're doing, well, you, you must hate them. You must be one of those war-starting kinds of religious people. Well, no, the reality is that, that what we want to do is we want to love people. We, we want to have a love that's genuine and from the heart and overflowing in prayers to God and that love that would seek not to pretend that people are okay when they're not and, and, and to seek to see them come to an actual saving relationship with Jesus, to actually receive the forgiveness of their sins that does not come through zeal for religion but comes through the person of Jesus Christ alone. That's what we want. And so as we we look in this passage right here, this is in the middle of a section. I've told you the last few sermons ever since we got to chapter 9 that there is a section of the book of Romans that goes from chapter 9 through chapter 10 and into chapter 11 where Paul's concern as he is writing this letter to the church at Rome, his concern is to address the big question of why is it that so many of the Jewish people have rejected the Jewish Savior? Why is it that so few of those that Jesus came to from his own people died on the cross as the Messiah that was predicted all through the Old Testament? Why is it that so few of them among the Jewish people have recognized that he is the Savior who offers this gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, as it said back in Romans 1. And and he dealt with that, dealing first of all with with the sovereignty of God over all of this, that, that God has an elect remnant within Israel as well as elect from every tribe and tongue and nation that he is bringing together as his spiritual Israel. He's going to get back to that concept when we get to chapter 11. But right here in this section, starting back in what we were in at the very end of chapter 9, he's kind of switching tones a little bit and and looking a little bit less from the sovereignty of God perspective and a little bit more from the responsibility of man perspective. And hey, what is going on with those who don't believe And how can we press them toward belief, and how can we pray for them, and how can we be real about the fact that you you cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ, but we want that to happen for people. That's kind of where we are in the middle of this. And so he begins, the first thing that we see to do here in verse 1 is that we need to follow Paul's example in having a heartfelt kind of prayer for sincerely religious unsaved people. Now, we might also say just a heartfelt prayer for all unsaved people, but in particular here, he's talking about those who are among the sincerely religious, and yet they're still lost in their sins because they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, brothers, means, hey, I'm going to get your attention, talking to you fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, listen to me, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, or is that they may be saved. 
He says, that's my heart's desire. Guys, it is good. It is called for. It is biblical to have a genuine, heartfelt love for lost people and a genuine, heartfelt desire in our hearts for them to be saved. He's already driven this home in one or two places, but I just want to remind you how he started chapter 9. You might even have the page open already. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness that the Holy, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He says, look, I so dearly love my kinsmen. He's talking about his fellow Jewish people. I so dearly love them, and I so much long for their salvation, and I have such great sorrow over the fact that so few have turned to Christ in faith. He says, I can even imagine myself wanting to take their place in hell for them in order that they could be saved. Now, obviously, as we said when we were in that passage, that's not a thing that's possible. The only one who can actually take the wrath of God and substitute himself for us to give us salvation is Jesus Christ himself. So that's not a thing that anybody could actually do for each other, but he is just driving home in the way that he says this, driving home rhetorically the fact he has a deep, deep sorrow over their lostness and desperately wants to see them saved and sees the way that God has worked through the Jewish people throughout history in order to bring about the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, and, of course, to bring about the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so putting all that together, he says, this is my heart's desire, is that they may be saved, is that they may be saved. Now, it's normal for, for Bible-believing Christians to get accused of being hateful toward people don't, who don't believe the gospel because we say that they're lost in their sins. And it's, it's as though that we had some kind of a sense of superiority about that or some, took some kind of a, a pleasure in the idea that people may go to hell when we don't. Well, we don't take pleasure in that. We don't have some kind of sense of superiority about it as though we deserve heaven and other people don't, we know that none of us do. But at the same time, even though there's that caricature out there that we don't care about people who are lost, don't let the caricature be true in your own heart. Don't let it be true. Look at Paul's example here. He has a heart's desire, a heart's desire, where he said back in verse nine, chapter, one, chapter 9, verse 1, that he, he, he says, I'm speaking the truth, the Holy Spirit bears me witness. My heart's desire is for this. We need to have a genuine, heartfelt desire for the lost to be saved. Now, I want to remind you that when he speaks about this, he's speaking about people who have committed incredible sin against him. That may not be something that's on your radar as you're reading about this, but I just want, to, I just want you to think about what he says 
It happened. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Now that's some pretty incredible stuff right there. They tried to kill him by stoning him to death because he was preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They had beaten him with rods because he was preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Five different occasions, they had, they had given him the 40 lashes minus one. You know what that means? It means they took a whip that would make his flesh be ripped apart, and they whipped him across the back 39 times on five different occasions. That's 195 times. And if, if anybody could say, boy, this people is sinful against me, Paul could certainly have done that. But what does he do? He says, no, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By enemies, he doesn't mean the people that you hate. <laughs> he means the people that hate you, the people who are out to get you. He said, love them and pray for those who persecute you. It reminds me of the way that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross, when he was being crucified. Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It reminds me of the way that when Stephen... The first Christian martyr, when he was being stoned to death for standing up and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that as he was doing that, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know who that is? That's Paul. That's the one that God used to write this letter to the Romans that we're going through. And Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Isn't that incredible? So I want you to remember that when you see this verse, brothers, my heart's desire to, and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That was Stephen's heart's desire and his prayer to God for Paul, the guy who was holding the coats as Stephen was dying. And that's now Paul's desire for those who have beat him with whips 195 times, with rods three different times, who tried to stone him to death. He's saying, I love them from the heart, and I want to see them saved. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that if there is somebody who is abusive towards you and is unrepentant of that sin, that you have to pretend that that's not the case and hang out with them all the time. That's not what this means, but it does mean that even in a situation like that, it's not up to us to be the ones who take the vengeance from the heart. We're to take those sins that have been committed against us, not pretend that they're not real, but to turn them over to God, as we're going to see when we get to Romans chapter 12, to say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, not me, says the Lord and to pray to God that their sins might be forgiven, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Now, we have to be honest that 
there's very, very, very few of us who go through the kinds of persecution that Paul had been through, even though there are our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are going through those things in various places right now. That's very rare, but even for us, we need to have a heart's desire and a prayer to God for people to be saved, for people to be saved. He says not just a heart's desire, but a prayer to God, a prayer to God. Now just remember, Romans 9, most of Romans 9 was all about the fact that God is completely sovereign over salvation. You start going through those verses, you start getting into it deeply, there's just no getting around it, that it's saying that God has decided from before the foundation of the world who are his elect and who are the reprobate. Who is it that he is going to save by his grace, by granting them the gift of faith, when they would hear the preaching of the gospel, and who is it that he's going to harden their hearts and leave them in their sin, and they will be eternally destroyed. That's just clear as you go through Romans 9. But you get to Romans 10, and it's not a different doctrine. It's not a different thing. If you can't put together Romans 9 and Romans 10, then you're misunderstanding one or the other. At the same time that we hold that God is completely sovereign over salvation, we also hold that part of the way that God's going to save people, if he does it, is through means. He's going to save people through the means of the preaching of the gospel. And listen to this. He's going to save people through the means of our prayers that God would save people. When He says... I pray, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You know what he's doing there when he prays this? He's praying, God, please save these people. Please let them hear the gospel. And and not only to hear the gospel, but at some point, would you by your Holy Spirit come and effectually call them to yourself? Would you come and grant them the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, the faith in Jesus Christ that involves a repentance, a change of mind, recognition my old system was wrong and my sin was wrong and I need to turn to Christ in faith, would you please grant them to be born again? And in fact, praying for people's salvation is one of the greatest statements that we recognize that God is sovereign over people's hearts and God is sovereign in salvation. I want to read you a long quote. This is from the beginning of a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, which is available in the book nook back there. All right? J.I. Packer says at the beginning of that book that all Christians acknowledge that God is sovereign over salvation in at least two ways. One of the ways is because we thank him for saving us, which means he deserves to be thanked for saving us. God is sovereign in it. But he says there's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them, that he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayer 
that you are not asking God to actually bring them to faith because you recognize that this is something he cannot do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that God that, that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat him to do that very thing, and your confidence in asking rests upon the certainty that he is able to do what you ask. And so indeed he is. This conviction which animates your intercessions is God's own truth, written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. In prayer, then, and the Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays, you know that it is God who saves men. You know that what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. Thus, by your patience of intercession, no less than by giving thanks for your conversion, you acknowledge and confess the sovereignty of God's grace, and so do all Christian people everywhere. Isn't that neat? If you're praying for people to be saved, you are confessing in your prayers, God is sovereign to do it. God is able to sovereignly intervene and save people, to give them the gift of faith. But the point here is not just that, that we see God's sovereignty in this, but that we're called to do it. We are called to have a heart's desire and a prayer to God for people to be saved. He's not going to stop with this prayer. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about our responsibility to do evangelism. That's going to become very, very clear in the middle of chapter 10. People are not going to be saved if we don't tell. But this begins, this is a beginning point, saying we need to have a love and a heart's desire and a prayer to God for the salvation of the lost. Why do we pray? Why do we pray that? Why do we ask God's help? If we're going to go and we're going to tell the gospel, why do we ask God to do it? Well, sometimes I, I go and I visit people in hospitals or in nursing homes, and sometimes when I, I go and visit people in hospitals or nursing homes, I'll come and I'll find somebody who maybe they don't have anybody with them. Some people in the situation like that, they've got, they've got people with them all the time. But others, they don't necessarily have somebody with them all the time. And, and sometimes you, you find somebody in a situation where they're in there, and of course there are nurses around and there's people around, but they've got a situation of obvious need. And when you find somebody in a situation of obvious need, you're going to do what you can to help, but, but the main thing that you can do to help somebody in a situation like that is go and get the nurse. Say, hey, there is something going on here that, that requires some professional medical assistance. I'm going to go and I'm going to get the one who can do what I can't do. So that's just a normal thing that happens in my life as a pastor when I go to visit people is to say, hey, I see that there's something here. I can't do anything about, but I can ask the nurse to come look. I can ask the nurse to come help. And you know what we can do, even as people who are about the task of sharing the gospel, we're doing what we can. We recognize that ultimately there's help that we can't do. It is beyond your ability, Christian. It is beyond your ability to make someone born again. It is beyond your ability to convert a soul. We do the things that God puts in our hands to do, especially to tell the gospel, to speak the truth in love. But we need to go to God. We need to ask God to do his sovereign, miraculous work to convert a soul. That's what we see. Brothers, my prayer to God, my heart's desire is for their salvation. 
There's a question, though, why? Now, these verses, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, they're a logical progression. You may notice in your Bible, there's a couple couple translations that don't have it, but they ought to all have it. In verse 2, it begins with the word for. In verse 3, it begins with the word for. In verse 4, it begins with the word for. So it's kind of saying, well, there's this because of this, which is because of this, which is because of this. All right. So that's that's if you're if you're looking at your outline on the back of the bulletin and and you see point two begins with the question why and point three and point four. Well, that's just what's there. It's it's saying why why is it that we pray for people to be saved? Why was Paul praying for the sincerely religious Jews of his day to be saved? Well, here's the answer in verse two. It's because sincere religion can be sincerely wrong. It says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A zeal for God. Zeal for God in the Bible is pretty much always presented as a good thing. We're not going to tell anybody not to have zeal for God. But it says here that their zeal for God is misdirected. It's a zeal for God that's an ignorant zeal for God, not according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge is it talking about? Well, it's talking about a knowledge of personally knowing Jesus Christ, a knowledge of coming to an embrace of the saving gospel of grace, that God saves people by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you miss that, you can have all kinds of zeal, you can have all kinds of sincerity about religion, and yet be sincerely lost in your sins. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say except through me and except through being sincere about not following me. No, he says through me. As the apostles, when they were standing and bearing witness in Acts chapter 4 to the Jewish leaders who were demanding that they no longer preach Jesus, they said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, having all kinds of zeal for God, having all kinds of sincere religion can leave you in hell. It is not religion, it is not sincerity, it is not zeal that saves you. It is Jesus Christ alone who saves. And it's through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul himself mentioned just a minute ago the story of him standing there and holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death for preaching the gospel. He had that kind of zeal. The kind of zeal that he's saying that he sees in his Jewish brothers and sisters a zeal that's not according to knowledge, he had that before God saved him, before he came to faith in Jesus. He says in Galatians 1.14 about the way that he was before he was forgiven of his sins, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And yet, you know what he was at that point? He was a lost person, condemned in his sins. 
He says in Philippians 3, 6, that before he was forgiven, before he was saved, that he had such zeal. He said, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for God that he was out to destroy God's people. You see what's going on there? Sincere religion doesn't save. It is Christ who saves. It's Christ who saves. One of the most common and one of the most eternally dangerous assumptions that people make is that God is going to save people who are sincere in their religion, even if they don't embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Christians even think this because of one of two reasons. One reason is that they don't like the idea that God may send people to hell who have never heard the gospel, as though that were an excuse Or a second reason is that they don't like the idea that God would send people to hell who have some beliefs that are very close to the gospel. Well, with respect to the first one, the idea that God would send people to hell who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you question whether that's the case, go back, just make a note right here that you're going to go this afternoon, spend some of this Lord's Day reading and meditating and praying on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. We went through that very thoroughly when we were there, but do you know how I'm going to sum that up, all those verses? No one has an excuse before God. There is no such thing as a good person. There is no such thing as the righteous pagan out there on the island. All human beings are in rebellion against God. And it is only through the gospel, or I should say only through Christ and only applied and brought to us through the message of Christ that God saves. They are without excuse, it says. That ought to drive us to get the gospel to people, as we're going to see later in Romans 10. But the second thing that people don't like, I said, is is that God might send people to hell who have some beliefs that are very close to the gospel. See, sometimes we're we're misled because we think, okay, all right, we we know that we're we're in a Baptist church, and then out there there are some good Baptists and there's some bad Baptists. You know, there's there's the really really solid Baptist churches, and then there's Rainbow Flag Baptist Church. And then, and then we know that you get a little different from that, and, and you got the Methodists, and you got the Presbyterians, and then you get a little different from that, and you got like the, the Anglicans and stuff, and then you get different from that, and you got the Catholics, and you get different from that, and you got the, you got the, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox, all the Orthodox. And then you get different from that, and you, you get into to Judaism. You get different from that. You get into Islam, but that still just has one God. So, but then you get different from that, and you, you get into like Hinduism. And boy, there's a bunch of gods there. And 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 you kind of when you start considering these things, sometimes there there is a way that we can be deceived, where we think, boy. Okay, I get that somebody who's in one of those many many gods religions that definitely they're lost. But but what about somebody? who is in the Jewish religion. And I should say when I say that, I'm talking about the modern Jewish religion, the religion that ever since Jesus rose from the dead has been rejecting him. That's not the same thing as the religion of the Old Testament. All right? But sometimes that can throw people off. They say, but they're saying that they serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, Islam is saying that they serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And boy, they sure do seem to have a lot of zeal about it. 
And then you get a little closer to home and you might even say, but what about those who are part of the Roman Catholic Church? Boy, they, they actually have a pretty decent doctrine of the Trinity. They even have a pretty decent doctrine of, 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 of the person of Christ in terms of being fully God and fully man, uh, and, and two natures in one person. And, and how, how can they, how, you know, maybe, you know, I just think the pastor's a little too harsh in bringing up, bringing up Catholics. Here's the thing, guys. Zeal for God apart from the gospel of justification by faith alone does not save. It just does not save. There are all kinds of things out there that are not the gospel and that can be gradients along the way of accepting more or less truth about God. But here is the central difference. Here's the central difference. How are we made right with God? How are we made right with God? The the answer is in verse 3, okay? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And I'll just mention right now verse 4 also. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Guys, here's why it is that there can be sincere religion that is sincerely wrong, that does not save. It's because only God's righteousness saves. Man's righteousness does not save. Only God's righteousness saves. Paul is talking about those who were part of the Jewish people, and yet he says being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see the difference there? On the one hand, there's a seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. And on the other hand, there is a submission to God's righteousness. One of these is the path to hell, and one of these is the path to heaven. And every man-made religion always takes the path to hell. And the path to hell is, I will establish a righteousness of my own. I will become good enough. I will demonstrate that I deserve heaven. Now, of course, there could be all kinds of ways of expressing that and ways of understanding heaven or whatever it is, but that's what all man-made religion always boils down to. We're going to be good enough. We're going to establish a righteousness of our own. God's system is different. It is, I don't need to establish a righteousness of my own. I need to submit to the righteousness that is not my own. I need to submit to God's righteousness. I need to abandon every bit of hope that I had in the idea that I could stand as a good person, and I need to embrace the goodness that is outside of me. I need to embrace the goodness of Jesus Christ. I need his righteousness to be counted as mine, even though I haven't done it. I need to be justified by Jesus. 
I need God's righteousness to be counted to me in my column because I could never establish a righteousness of my own before God. The only thing that you can do in this category, if you're seeking to establish a righteousness of your own before God, all you can do is be held up to God's righteous standard, which is perfection. And the fullness of the law and all of the implications of all Ten Commandments that you never thought through about how it applies to your actions and your words and your heart. And all you can do in establishing your own righteousness is be shown a sinner. That's all that can happen on the day of judgment. If you are approaching God thinking, I'm going to show God that I was good enough. But here's the beauty of the gospel. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, he took our sin on the cross. And we know in Christ, here's the gospel, all we can bring to God is our sin. But he takes it on the cross as we trust in Jesus And he gives us the gift of his righteousness, a free gift to be received by faith, not something that we can work our way into and earn before God. Now, that's going to be the tendency of sinful man, though, is to prefer self-righteousness over accepting God's righteousness. It says in Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He told this story in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He told this parable. He says to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, meaning a very, very religious man, and the other a tax collector, meaning somebody who stole for a living. I'm <laughs> I'm not talking about the modern IRS, despite the problems that we may have with them sometimes. We're talking about the way that that would happen then. So you've got a notorious good man and a notorious bad man both together in the temple. And it says that the, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, the man who knew he was a bad man, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. That means that one went home forgiven right with God, possessing eternal life, and the religious guy went home dead in his sin. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, all of these religious systems that man invents, they always want to establish a righteousness of their own. That is where the Judaism of Paul's day had drifted. It wasn't following after the religion of the Old Testament as God breathed out his words where God had said in Jeremiah 23, the name of the Lord is the Lord your righteousness. 
They, 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 were, they just seemed to be blind to, to passages like Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Instead, they had developed this whole extra system of all of these things. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. Almost like this credit system before God. And the sad thing is that that has happened in Roman Catholicism as well. I need to tell you this. Because the, the, it, it, over time, I start hearing things, people coming to me and saying things like, well, but people can be saved in the Catholic Church, right? And my answer to that is, yes, and if they're saved, they will get out of there. And you know why they'll get out of there? Is because the whole system is against the gospel. And it, it ceased to be a true church in the year 1547, on January 13th of that year, when at the Council of Trent, they said this. They said, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in the order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Do you know what that means? It means that that organization declared in the year 1547, we stand against the gospel as God has delivered it in the scriptures. And any who preach this gospel of justification by faith alone, we hereby declare to be hellbound. That is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. That is the position. You may say, well, that was 1547, and when I was growing up in CCD, they never told me that. Well, it still says it today in the current Catechism of the Catholic Church that you can go and read on the Vatican website. It says, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion, but moved by the Holy Spirit and charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Now, I could read you more. I'm just going to stop there. But, guys, I want you to see, when we say that we need to evangelize people who are caught in that false system of Roman Catholicism, it's not because we hate Italian people. It's not because we hate Irish people. It's not anything like that. It's because it is a system that has established itself in an official position that is against the gospel and that is now seeking, ever since 1547, in an official way, to establish a righteousness of their own rather than to submit to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Do you see what I'm saying here? We need to call people who are sincere in their religion to turn and repent and to receive God's grace by faith alone in Christ alone because that is the only way that God justifies sinners. Sincere religion can be sincerely wrong. But praise God that this happened to Paul. He said, even as he was progressing in all kinds of religious things, even as he had all kinds of religious accomplishments, he met Jesus. And he says in Philippians 3.8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's how God saves people. That's why we say, brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We want people not to be saved by some zeal for God that's not according to knowledge. We want them to receive the righteousness of God that comes not by the law, but by faith in Christ for everyone who believes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to save verse 4 until next time, all right? Because i got a lot to say about verse 4, so I'll just save that. We'll put that together with the verses that come after that. But for now, I just want to ask you personally, all right? So we've, we've talked a little bit about our attitude toward those who, who would be outside and the fact that we want to see them saved, the fact that we, we don't want to deceive ourselves and, and think that it's loving to say that people who reject the gospel are, are somehow okay. We don't want to do that. We've, we've talked about that a little bit, but I want to ask you personally, right? Because th- this, is, this is how God works, is not to begin with our looking around at what others are doing. It's to, to begin with our looking at our own hearts. And I just want to ask you this. Are you seeking to establish a righteousness of your own before God? Are you seeking to say to yourself, one day I'm going to be able to approach the throne of God and I'm going to be able to say, here's my accomplishments, God. Here's all that I did for you. I cast out demons in your name. I did mighty works in your name. I went to church every Sunday in your name. I took the Lord's Supper in your name. I got baptized in your name. I told people about Jesus in your name. I did this. I did that. I did all these things. Now tell me, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on. You know what Jesus says is going to happen to those who approach him in that attitude of saying, here's all the stuff I did for you. Here's all the righteousness I established for myself. Jesus said he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. He had a zeal, but not according to knowledge, not knowing Christ. If that's you, I invite you to come to Jesus. I invite you to count all of the religious stuff that you've built up for yourself over the years, to count it in the garbage bin, to consider it as rubbish in order that you may gain Christ. Not, being, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law and through all your religious accomplishments, but a righteousness that belongs to Jesus, that comes by faith in Jesus. I invite you not to establish a righteousness of your own, but to submit to God's righteousness that's given to you at the cross. Believe and be saved. After we pray, we're going to sing a hymn, and that hymn is one that was written uh, imagining what it would be like when that, when that tax collector and that Pharisee came together in the temple and they both prayed. What would it be like if the Pharisee came to repentance? That's the hymn we're going to sing, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we we bring nothing to the table except our sin, but you bring the fullness of forgiveness and grace and justification and righteousness in Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray that if there are those who have been sincere in their religion and yet without submitting to the righteousness of God, I pray that you would grant them forgiveness and repentance and grant them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, as we talk about those who are in other religious systems, Lord, we we have spoken of of modern Judaism, we've spoken of Catholicism and of, of some other religions as well, but those are the main ones that we encounter in our community. Father, I pray that you would not give us any kind of an attitude of hatred or contempt. Lord, if those sorts of things would creep in, I pray that you would forgive us, strike those sins dead in our hearts. But I pray that you give us a genuine love for those who are lost in false systems apart from Christ, and I pray that you would save them. Give us a genuine heartfelt desire as we pray to you for their salvation. Lord, we just pray that as we bring the gospel that you would enable people from the heart to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to submit submit to your righteousness. Lord, I pray Lord, I pray that wherever there is a, an attitude in our hearts that begins to, to sneak in, that we could establish a righteousness of our own before you, I pray that you turn us to Christ and just give us a rejoicing, believing heart in his person, in his work that's finished for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.